my grandmother recently sent me some old pictures in the mail. I don't know if you've ever had this experience when you're, you're looking through photos and, and obviously the first person you always look for is yourself, right? And, and so I'm looking for myself in the photo and I'm like, all right, there, there I am. Uh, and then I have to do a double take because there I am not. Uh, I, I realize this picture is older and, and I would have been two or three at this point in time. And, and that the person I mistook for myself uh, was my father. Uh, you see, I look just like my dad. It's scary. My mom used to catch me in the hallway as a teenager and kind of do a, one of those. I just, I can't tell you, you just look so much like your father. It freaks me out. My sons have inherited this, this wonderful characteristic. They look just like me. You know, people are always like, how, how did you figure out a way to clone all of your children? And they're like, and why would you? <laughs> but they look just like me. We have these common characteristics, these identifiers that help people know just what a brawn looks like. We come to Ephesians chapter 4 this morning. Paul has kind of wrapped up the first half of Ephesians where he's telling us all about the family that we have been adopted into in Christ. And now in the second half of Ephesians, he's going to encourage us, well, to be who we are, to live as members of the family that we have been brought into. He's going to say that you have been adopted as sons, now live like it. There are some common family traits, some identifiers that show what God's people look like, what a Christian looks like. He's going to tell us to live like that. We said before, the first three chapters in Ephesians are about doctrine. They're laying that firm foundation for our faith that we have been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's not of our own doing. Our salvation is accomplished by God and His mercy. And now, in the second three chapters, we're going to be told about devotion. Our devotion springs forth from the doctrine of the first three chapters. The imperatives follow the indicative. It's important we don't mess up the the order because if we do, we will mess up the gospel. We are not right with God because we do X, Y, and Z. We do X, Y, and Z because we've been made right with God. We've been adopted into the family and so now we live as part of of the family. So so doctrine, you've been adopted into God's family, devotion, and so now we're going to live like family members. We're going to start to look more and more like our Father. And so for those of you who are like, man, those first three chapters, there were just all these things that are true about me. I, I want some stuff to do. I need some imperatives in my life. We can get a whole lot of them the next few weeks. This morning, though, we're just looking at the first six verses of chapter four. And that first family characteristic that Paul was going to bring our attention to is unity. It's our main idea this morning. The church is to be characterized by unity. And I want to encourage you, in light of that, to walk worthy of your calling. To walk as one. We pray together and get started this morning. Father, Your Word is good. 
You are good. We come before You with thankful hearts. We pray that as we listen to Your Word that it would change us. Pray that Your Spirit would be present with us. Pray that You would cause the peace of Christ to rule in our hearts. Lord, we pray that You would remind us that we have been made one body, one people in Him. And that You would make us thankful. We thank You that Christ has died and put death to death. We thank You that He is risen and returning. Lord, we pray that You would speak to us this morning from Your Word. We, Your people, listen. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Look with me at verse 1 of Ephesians chapter 4. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord. Remember, Paul is imprisoned, and we talked a few weeks ago about how Paul's imprisonment is, is not from all these external circumstances. Ultimately, it's ultimately from God. And his adversity actually serves as an opportunity for him to fulfill those things to which God has called him. His imprisonment results in us getting the prison epistles. He writes large swaths of the New Testament while it would seem that God's plans were being, well, hindered. The reality is, is that God is always in providential control. He's always working out His purpose in history. And Paul is a part of that. The church we see in Ephesians 3.10 is the star of that cosmic drama. It's through the church that the manifold wisdom of God is made known. God is working all things together according to the counsel of His will. And Paul has reminded us of that in verse 11 of chapter 1 and we have it brought to our attention again here as he says, a prisoner for the Lord. I, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So we can see that kind of controlling imperative right there in verse 1. We are to walk or to do so in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. And so, I think to understand what Paul is telling us here, we need to define these words. And so, we'll start with, with walk. But when Paul uses the word walk, he's simply picking up on a very common Old Testament metaphor. It just refers to your conduct. And so, you've probably heard it before a bunch of places. I always think of Psalm 1, right? Blessed is the man who walks not according to the counsel of the wicked, etc., and so walking is tantamount to your living. In fact, some of your translations probably have translated the word walk as live there. And the reason why is they want you to understand when Paul talks about your walk, he's talking about your life. He's talking about how you live. Well, we saw this already at the beginning of chapter 2. Remember when, when Paul says you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Right? And so it's kind of funny when you think about it, or ironic maybe, I don't know, but, but you're dead and now you're living in your sins. It's a strange juxtaposition there. But this word walk shows up here and it's going to show up a few more times throughout the rest of Ephesians. We'll see it in verse 17, 
Uh, we'll see it in verse, uh, verse 2 of chapter 5, walk in love. And so Paul is concerned with telling us how we walk or how we live in light of our relationship with Christ. We have been given new life, and so now we have new lives, a new walk, a new way that we walk according to. And so Paul is saying, just like Aerosmith, right, walk this way. In what way is that, Paul? Well, according to this call to which you have been called. And so uh, the next word we, we want to define is calling. What does this mean? I think it's helpful to say, well, this does not mean Calling is not a special thing that is reserved only for a select few Christians. Right? If, if you are a Christian, you have heard and responded to the call of God. You were, as Ephesians 2 said, dead in your sins, walking according to the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, and through the preaching of the gospel, through God's word and the work of God's spirit, you heard God's voice. And because of the work of God's Spirit in your heart, you responded to it. You came to life. God called out to you in order to save you. When Paul talks of of calling, he's talking about the salvation that has been accomplished in in you and the salvation that you are called to live out. Does that make sense? There's this aspect of salvation where, where we receive salvation but we're also called to live out our salvation. We've been brought into the family, and now we are supposed to live like members of the family. We're to look like our Father. God calls us to Himself. Anytime I think of calling, I can't help but get these certain images out of my head, and one of which is sometimes my kids get outside. right? You know, they get throughout the door, I'm not paying any attention, kind of like cats or dogs, they just slip in and out. And, and I'll be like washing dishes or something. Our, our, you know, our kitchen window kind of faces towards the church and, and then 151 runs right along there. And without fail, uh, every child, when they're in that toddler phase on more than one occasion, uh, you know, we'll just, you'll see them out the window just making a beeline for 151. And typically how I respond to that, always, is I, I hurry myself outside. Uh, and right now it's Benjamin is in, is in the toddler phase where he tries to walk to his own destruction. And, and I, I give him that, uh, that Han Solo, like, Ben! And because he knows my voice, you know, he'll stop. I know some of you are like, actually, I saw you say that to some of your kids this morning. They didn't slow down at all. But, <laughs> but, but sometimes, I assure you, it works. It works. And so he'll, he'll hear my voice. Because he knows my voice, he'll stop dead in his tracks, and then he'll turn, and he'll, he'll come to me. He'll come back into the safety of my arms. This is kind of what is happening when God calls to you, Christian. You're doing your own thing. You're walking towards your destruction and then the voice of God comes to your ears and all of a sudden, you stop in your tracks and you repent of your sins. You turn around and you walk towards God. Although, that's not, not the whole picture, right? So our, our calling is, is maybe even similar to, more similar to Lazarus. Remember, Lazarus is dead and in the grave for four days. His, his body is, is decomposing and Jesus goes to the grave and he says, Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus gets up all mummified and comes out. A lie. This is what God does. He calls out to dead people like you and me and brings us to life. He gives us faith in Christ Jesus. Faith in the blood of Jesus. You see, because all of us, apart from the call of God, apart from the work of God, apart from the work of Jesus Christ, 
deserve death. All of us, apart from the work of God, actually love sin and death. We walk in it. We are walking a pathway of destruction. Sometimes it doesn't feel like that on the day-to-day. But ultimately, there will come a day if we are apart from God where our destruction will be made manifest. Because God will judge us for the wrong that we have done. Rightly. And He will rightly pour out His just wrath on all who persist in rebellion against Him for all eternity. And friends, the punishment fits the crime. That's how holy and how good God is. That the right punishment for your sins have to be punished forever and ever. Sometimes that strikes us wrong and weird, but it's simply because we don't understand how great the one sinned against is. And that puts all of us really awful position. Hopeless. But God, remember back in Ephesians 2, because of the great love with which He loved us, made us alive together in Christ. Well, how does He do that? How does He forgive sins? And the answer is, Jesus, God the Son, took on flesh and died in the place of His people. He died for His bride. He died for all who will call out to Him in faith. Died so that you and I might live when we turn from our sins and trust in Christ. That's good news for us. It means that we don't have to inherit the destruction that we were choosing. It means that rather, God has called out to us, turned us around, brought us to life, and has brought us into an inheritance that we couldn't have even imagined. Blessing upon blessing. So this is what it is to be called. To be called into salvation. We receive life. And then we live in that newness of life. So we want to live new. We want to live according to our calling. But what does it mean to walk in a manner that's worthy? To walk worthy. How do we walk worthy? Well, certainly, it is not earning our salvation. Paul just wrote the first three chapters of Ephesians. We don't earn our salvation by our works or our walking. So so what does it mean to walk worthy? simply means to walk as Jesus walked. To walk in a way that is fitting for a child of God. There's a story of the queen mother of the British royal family. When her children, Princess Elizabeth, who is now Queen Elizabeth, was younger, uh, she would remind her, her siblings, whenever they would go to a party or anywhere else, before they left, she would say, quote, Royal children have royal manners. It was a reminder that their behavior needed to match their status. Their status came first and their behavior should follow. And Likewise here, Paul is saying, your status, your identity as in Christ, in the family of God, is sure and secure. And now you need to live in a way that is consistent with that status. Right? Royal children have royal manners. When we come to Christ, we are no longer children of wrath. We are adopted as children of God. And so, as royal children, we want to live out like royal living. 
We're going to walk in a way that is worthy of that calling which we have received. And Paul wants to make certain that we see this is urgent. He's urging us to walk in accord with our calling. We don't have, if you're a Christian, you can't wait to start changing your life so that it conforms more and more to Scripture. It's something that needs to happen right away. In fact, it's, it's that fruit that helps to prove the work of God has actually taken place in you. And so we receive salvation. We, we believe we can receive it. You don't have to be a scholar to receive salvation. You know, a child can do it because all we have to do is look and live. All we have to do is believe in Christ. But that belief is going to be borne out in our behavior. And Paul says we need to walk worthy of our calling because walking worthy of your calling is urgent. New life is evidenced by new living. Friends, if you are a Christian, you need to be living differently than you did before. Additionally, you should be rejoicing in your call to God. Like the idea that God decided to save you and love you should thrill you. And it should cause worship to well up in your chest. Non Christian, are you called? Do you have a desire to believe the gospel? A desire for new life? Do not harden your heart today. Believe. Call out to Christ. He receives all who come to Him. Brothers and sisters, we want to walk worthy of the call. It's, it's urgent, and when we walk worthy, it's also unifying. That's what Paul's going to tell us in verse 2. He says, I want you to walk in a manner that's consistent with your calling in Christ. And if we would ask the question, well, what does that look like, Paul? What are you getting at? He, he says, well, that's the idea. Here's the explanation. Here's the, the manner in which you take that action. By which you take that action. Verse 2. With all, I wouldn't just put, we're going to insert the word walk there. So walk with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So the, the manner that we achieve unity, we see here that the goal is unity. And the means by which we get to that unity that needs to be maintained, those means are humility and gentleness with all patience, bearing with one another in love. I say that, that might seem a little odd because Paul just told us in chapter 2 that, that we're one in Christ, that we have this unity, that the unity has been accomplished. So why is he telling us to maintain it? Right? Doesn't he just give it? Well, yes and no. Right? Yes, God has, he has created the unity and he charges the church with keeping unity. Right? He, he has made us one in Christ and now he calls us to maintain that oneness. And so we, we kind of see God's sovereignty and our responsibility on display. Right? They go really well together. You can think about this even in 
in terms of your own family life, right? If you are married, you have some kids, you, are, you guys are united together as a family unit by virtue of being a family. But, we all know, families can have some problems. There is a, a measure of harmony and unity that has to be worked towards. Likewise in the church. We've been given a new family name. We've been brought into one body, but we must work at our unity. Unity in Christ is, is given to us, but it is not passive. We are to work towards it. And the tools that Paul tells us to take up as we work towards it by the power of the Holy Spirit are humility, gentleness, patience. What is humility? I said before, humility can be defined a bunch of different ways. I love C.S. Lewis's definition. It's not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Humility has a regard for others, a willingness to serve other people, to, to hear them out. I always think what a wonderful thing it would be for folks to visit our church and to leave thinking, what a humble group of people that is. What a wonderful thing it would be for someone to walk away from a conversation with you and go, wow, what a humble person. They were concerned about me much more than themselves. We want to be marked by humility. This is a characteristic of God. One that we see on display in the life of Christ. Jesus humbled Himself as a servant. He humbled Himself taking on flesh. He humbled Himself to the point of death on a cross for you and me. That's other-oriented humility. Remember back when we, in January, we were in Philippians 2, and we said we want this kind of humility, this mindset, this attitude set of Christ to be written on our genetic code as a church. Remember how Philippians talks about humility this way in verse 3 of Philippians chapter 2. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind, this attitude among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, humility cultivates unity because it puts others ahead of self. It serves. We want to be a people that's like Jesus, humbly serving one another, pouring our lives out on behalf of the Gospel and on behalf of one another. Are you the kind of person that someone would describe as humble? I also want to point out these, the, the you in these verses is plural. It doesn't come across in English because you in the singular is just you and then you in the plural is just you. You could put y'all in there. This is a command of the whole church. We are all called to be a humble people. Why do I grow in humility? Simply by looking 
to the cross. Again and again and again. It is near impossible to puff out your chest when you are covered in the blood of Christ. When you have received that salvation which He procured for you, you will not try to stand on your own will recognize what it cost for you to be made right with God. Who will recognize the love that God has for you. And that same love you'll want to demonstrate to other people. I think Augustine said the primary disposition of a Christian is threefold. First of all, humility. Secondly, humility. And thirdly, humility. Let us be like Jesus. Let us be a humble people. And humility, often in Scripture, is accompanied by this second characteristic, gentleness or lowliness. In fact, Jesus says this is what is at the center of his very heart in Matthew chapter 11. He says this in verse 29. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble or lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Jesus is gentle. You have a really old translation. I might say meek there. You've probably heard meekness, you know, the old pastor, is not weakness. I know you all know that one. And it's true. Meekness is not weakness. Gentleness is not powerlessness. It is strength under control for the good of others. Gentleness chooses to comfort and encourage rather than crush. Gentleness is treating others with with kindness rather than roughness. It's being approachable. Does that describe us as a church? All Christians, all churches, this church, we're called to be gentle. All of us. And this should especially be true of our church's pastors and elders. I think this is an often overlooked qualification for elders, but it's, it's right in that list. It's not an exhaustive list, but it's in like a list, right? See it in Titus chapter 3. Paul writes, Therefore an overseer, it's a, a pastor or an elder, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome. And so you have gentleness in, in contrast to being violent, to being quarrelsome. A gentle person is someone who is a uniting person. And so certainly we, we want the whole church to be those kind of peoples and especially our pastors to be, to be men who are united and uniting. I think it's important as a congregation that we ask ourselves, are our pastors walking faithfully in this? We want to make sure that we are following men who are gentlemen, who are not bullies, but shepherds, who are not demanding their own way, 
but who are loving and patiently teaching. Friends, pray for your pastors, me included. Pray that we would be gentle men. Pray for gentleness to mark our church. Additionally, husbands, there is a specific call to gentleness for you in your marriages. Weak and abhorrent is the man who uses his headship over his wife to put himself ahead. Your authority has been given so that you might bless those under it, not so that you might take advantage of them to your own end. Headship is not about getting yourself ahead It's about sticking your neck out for your wife and for your family. Let it never be said of the men in our church that we have abused our authority and have not cared properly for those under our care. Let us be as Jesus, gentle and humble, laying our lives down for our brides. Additionally, women, wives, wives, you are to be gentle in a special way. First Peter chapter three, verses three through five. Do not let your beauty consist of outward things, like elaborate hairstyles and wearing gold jewelry or fine clothes, but rather What is inside the heart? The imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. Because in the past, the holy women who put their hope in God also adorned themselves in this way, submitting to their own husbands. Ugly is the woman who demeans and disrespects her husband. Let it never be said of the wives among us that they clothe themselves in anything other than a gentle and quiet spirit. Let the wives among us be like Jesus, gentle and humble, submitting themselves to those in authority over them. Gentleness is to mark all of us in a special way. Gentleness is to be a mark of the family of God. We also see part of walking in a way that is unifying. It's humility and gentleness with patience. With patience. You could probably define this in a million different ways too, but I, I always just think of it as slowing down bearing with others. This is the the way that we we bear in love. So all of this should be kind of nested under bearing with one another in love. We bear with one another in love by exercising humility and gentleness with patience for one another. And patience causes us to do just that, to not snap at one another or give up on one another quickly. It, It keeps us from Kind of like the opposite of, of patience is having a hair-trigger temper. Right? You can think of it 
sometimes uh, counselors will talk of people and their personalities like minefields. Maybe you've heard this before. Like each person is kind of a, a field, and some people have more minds in them, and some people have less. So, so if you interact with, with Jane Doe, uh, she might have you know, two to four minds per 100 yards of field. It's pretty easy to get along with her. Now there are other people, like John Doe, who have like, for every you know, 100 yards or so of field, they have 1,000 minds. They're really hard to get along with. They're easily offended. It doesn't seem, no matter how you interact with them, they're always upset, always offended, always stirring up trouble, angry. We want to be patient. We want to be the kind of people that are, that are easy to get along with. We want to have thick skin and, and tender hearts. And we want to be the kind of people that when we step on someone else's mine, landmine, and they blow us up, that, that we, don't, we don't clap back at them or try to get back at them, but instead we, we love them back. We bear with them in love. Because we know that Christ has bared with us in love. We want to be patient with others as God has been patient with us. We're all in process of becoming more and more like Christ our Lord. We need to be patient with one another in that. Not quick to stir up trouble. I'm not saying that we don't address conflict when it, when it needs to be addressed. Church discipline should happen, you know, corrective and formative, and it must happen. Now, I'm not saying we just kind of sweep sin over the under the rug. I am saying that love covers a multitude of offenses. I am saying that patience means we are not easily offended. This is not a call to ignore sin. It's a call to love well. Do you think, what keeps us from humility and gentleness and patience? Probably a lot of answers could be given that would be right. Two I came up with were, were selfish pride and selfish priorities. The two are very related. I think when we put our pride and our priorities above everyone and everything else, we become like kudzu. You know what kudzu is? Probably seen it around. It's this awful vine plant thing. And if it gets in a garden or on a tree, it just takes over the whole thing and strangles the life out of it. Makes it ugly. It's terrible. This is what we do in the church when instead of walking with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, we choose to be prideful, to be bullying. That we exchange our humility and gentleness for brutality in demanding what we want. We become like kudzu when we exchange patience for cancel culture. We just, we're not going to give that person the benefit of the doubt. We're not going to try to work it out. We're just going to end that. We've got to cut that bad person out of our lives. They're hindering us from walking in all that we should be walking in, enjoying all that we should be enjoying. You've probably heard that. Cut, cut that bad person out. Well, no. That's not what God says. God says that, that if you have a brother or sister who has wronged you, that y'all need to work it out. You are one in Christ. You're to pursue peace with one another. You're like kudzu when we 
exchange patience for canceling one another. That we are like kudzu when we exchange bearing with one another in love for simply giving up on one another. Friends, have you, have you given up on the church? Have you given up on someone else in the church? Do not give up. The church is God's plan for displaying His glory among the nations. The church is God's greenhouse for Christians. It's where we grow. It's the family we've been brought into. It's where we live out the reality of our faith. It's where we maintain unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We walk worthy of our calling. We do so because it's urgent. The natural outworking of our relationship with Christ we walk worthy of our calling because it's, it's unifying. It helps us to maintain unity in the church. And then lastly, it's authenticating. It authenticates who our God is and our relationship with Him. Look with me at verse 4. Because what, Paul, what Paul's going to say is this unity is rooted in, it has its basis in, the unity of God. It says this, there is, you could put because there, this is the grounding. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So there is one body, the church, which is the body of Christ, there is one Spirit, the Holy Spirit, who seals believers and builds them together into God's holy temple. The Holy Spirit is the one who animates the church. We're called to one hope that is eternal life together with God and one another and the redeemed earth under the kingship of Jesus. We have one Lord. It's Jesus. It's not Caesar. It's not the president. It's not our politics. It's not our passions to which we were once enslaved. It's King Jesus. One Lord. Not us. Him. One faith. That's the content of the Christian faith. We hold to the faith once for all delivered to the saints. If you look at your catechism question for next week, it's question 31, it kind of fills this out for us. What do we believe by true faith? What do we mean one faith? Well, we summed up in the Apostles' Creed, right? We believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son and our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day He rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there He will come to judge the living and the dead. We believe in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Catholic, that's universal, church. The communion of saints. The forgiveness of sins. The resurrection of the body. And the life everlasting. Amen. There is one faith. The faith once for all delivered to the saints. It's what binds us together. Our faith in Christ. There is one baptism. This refers 
both to the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit within a believer when God gives us new hearts and when we work that out in the sign of the new birth, which is water baptism. So all who are in Christ share the experience of believing in Him by the work of the Spirit and being baptized into the church by the water. There's one God and Father of all. Our God is ruler over all of His creation. Our God, hear O Israel, the Lord your God, is one. There is not a dust mite or a star in all that exists that is outside of God's control. And so you can see Paul's point, and if you really look, you'll see the Trinitarian shape of this. He says this is what Jesus does, this is what the Spirit does, this is what the Father does. And he, he's saying, just as God is three persons in such a way that doesn't do any violence to God's oneness, it's one God and three persons, so too, you who are the church, though you are, are many different people, are one in a very real way. And in a way that doesn't diminish your distinctions. Your unity is rooted in the triunity of God. So you are to be one. This is precisely what Jesus prays for in John 17, in his high priestly prayer, John 17. Verse 22. Jesus prays to the Father, The glory that you have given me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Don't miss that last part. God has loved you, Christian, even as he has loved Christ. You've been swept up into the intra-Trinitarian love of God. Our love for one another, our unity as the church, authenticates what God has done in us. It's one of those fruits that prove the faith. Well, really, if you're ever doubting, one of the best uh, sources of assurance, if you're ever like, hey, am I really saved? Is to look at your involvement and your unity with the local church. It is this love between Christians and local congregations that display the glory of God to the nations, that tell those around us what God is like. The Christian life is lived out in the context of God's family. We, we get to know real people and have real relationships with those people. We, we see them regularly. Friends, we need to live with one another in such a way that we tell the truth about what God is like. Do we, does our life together as a church tell the truth about what God is like? If someone were to come into our midst 
would they find a people in love with Jesus Christ, saved by grace through faith, loving one another, humbly serving one another, gentle and patient towards one another, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. They think, man, God is here. Or would they see us as a prideful and bullying people? Concerned with worldly things. Let's pray that God would make us the kind of church that tells the truth about it. That displays His glory to the nations. Let us be the kind of people that walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. Church, walk worthy. Walk worthy of your calling. Walk as one. Let's pray. Father, we we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for challenging texts like this that call us to be a whole lot of things we, we aren't. We know that by Your Spirit, You will cause these fruits to grow in us. We ask that You would fill us with love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. We pray that You would help us to give one another the benefit of the doubt, to not be quick to judgment or slander, or division, but rather we would be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, the unity that Christ has purchased for us. Pray that you would make us a humble people, that you would constantly have our eyes fixed on Christ, that you would teach us to love Him more deeply and love one another more consistently. We love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.